name is Tristan Neeslein and this is the Three E's podcast and I'm joined by Jess Shanahan. How are you, Jess? I'm doing really well, Tristan. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. It's um, in a weather update from last time. It has stopped raining, so you'll be, you'll be pleased to hear that. That's great. We've got another packed, packed show for, for you today. We're going to be looking back at the Ocean X Prix that took place in Lacroze in Dakar in Senegal. We also have an interview with uh, David Orr uh, and Emmanuel Ali Mansaray, who has a very special uh, project that he's going to share with us. Um, but first off, uh, a little bit of news, which um, Jess, uh, I know you've, you've been following this story, the, the, the ruling with uh, Royal Dutch Shell uh, that happened recently um, may have a, a massive implication on, on electric vehicle uh, adoption uh, in that they've been ordered um, to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030 from their 2019 base level. Um, the Hague District Court actually uh, ruled this on the 26th of May as part of the Dutch's precautionary emissions reduction path um, to ensure that global temperatures remain below a safe limit taken from the IPCC report that we've, we've discussed previously. It signals, I think, Jess, a, a real shift in, in attitudes towards climate change. Um, and how it's going to be going to be approached in future? Yeah, I think you know, ordering a, a you know an oil company, an energy company to to take these measures is really interesting because it does show that we we do need to start relying on alternative fuels for transport. But I also think this sets a a really interesting precedent for for these companies that do have high emissions and the fact that you know they can be ordered to cut them. So I think this is, we're right on the edge of change in terms of like how businesses are are kind of ruled and managed and kind of governed. And I think that, you know, electrification and, and using different fuel sources and renewables is going to become even more important. And actually Shell are, they're already looking at electric, they're already installing kind of charge points and things and, and making moves that way. So I think for any kind of energy company to adapt, they they need to look towards, you know, renewables, towards electric and all those kinds of things, because that's ultimately what the planet needs. But also it's going to be what consumers want as well. Yeah, completely agree with you. And uh, I think uh, I saw it nicely, nicely put somewhere with it. It's actually human rights are effectively being linked to climate change with with a ruling like this. And it's uh, it's something that I think we will hopefully not need to see any more of but it does put a, a real time limit on 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 action a little bit more on that uh, later on when we're when we're talking about electric vehicle adoption but I thought really interesting piece of news to to start the show off with today absolutely so ahead of the ocean x pre we saw um quite a bit of news coming out around uh extreme e um one such piece was prince william actually visited in uh, with extreme e in scotland um katie munnings uh george mafadion from uh, x44 and alejandro agagua were all there to to welcome prince william um with alejandro agag uh praising prince william's earthshot 
uh, Prize, uh, which I think he released last year. Um, designed to incentivize environmental change um, and help repair the planet over the next 10 years is the, is the main mission statement of the Earthshot Prize. Uh, where I think for anyone who's got a great idea, um, they, there are five £1 million prizes which will be awarded every year for the next 10 years, providing at least 50 solutions to the world's greatest environmental problems between 2020 and 2030. We know this is a key decade of climate change and this fund, the Earthshot Prize, is really putting um, a fair bit of money behind the right solutions to achieve environmental uh, rescue. Uh, so what do you think of that, Jess? How did you, how did you welcome Prince William joining the, joining the team there? I think I was at Brands Hatch watching some racing uh, with some clients at the time and it, I was sitting down with one of my colleagues and she just made a face and I was like, what, what is going on? And then she just showed me the Instagram post of it, of, of Prince William in the car. And I just think it's, a, it's just a really cool thing to to give more visibility to the sport but also you know i guess give give more visibility to what prince william is doing in terms of you know uh, environment and things like that as well as you just mentioned so i i think it's really cool and i wonder if we're going to see more you know high profile people testing these cars and getting involved with the extreme in different ways yeah i think so and i i think that link with a shot prize and of course um Prince Charles, um, his his father, uh, has been a huge environmental advocate for quite some years. It's great to see Prince William carrying that on, and especially with uh, putting mm. so much uh, so much money uh, towards the right kind of solutions um, with the Earthshot Prize. Um, you can find out more about it at earthshotprize.org. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. I think it brings a uh, great number of eyeballs to the to the series but also um, this really shows a little bit about Extreme's um, ability to bring eyeballs to something like the Earthshot Prize as well. Absolutely it's such a, a good platform for any other kind of you know organizations or programs like the Earthshot Prize to to kind of you know, ride on this incredible engagement that Extreme has, has managed to build you know since it since it was announced but even more so since you know the first race. That's a really good point because we we saw even more organisations that we'll we'll talk on a little bit later who are getting involved with the uh, with the legacy projects that Extreme are, are putting together for for Senegal in the Ocean X Prix. Um, so speaking of engagement, we saw Fanworld introduced uh, at Extreme, uh, which offers exclusive access to the command centre, drivers onboard cameras, um, and competitions to win. Q and A's with the with the drivers uh, and signed autographs and and things like that. Just considering it's a zero fan event and the engagement all has to happen effectively away from the races. How important is something like this? I think it's vital. I mean, you know, uh, as much as Extreme has you know a, a mission and you know it's doing great things, motorsport first and foremost is for the fans so I think when fans can't visit the races it's so important to have another way that they can interact with the sport the teams the drivers because obviously when you're a fan of a driver or a team you want that kind of connection and if you can't see them kind of live and in person then it it's great that we can go and do something like that digitally 
Um, so I, I think, again, just super clever move from Extreme Like looking at, you know, we can't have fans there because of the environmental aspect. But what can we do for fans that's going to feel unique and special over other forms of motorsport? Yeah, and we're seeing that in in some of the new partnerships uh, also. So Twitch TV um, came came on uh, the races. Um, more more content and more of the race. I think were were broadcast live on on TikTok, which we spoke last time about the huge engagement that that happens at race one at the ocean, uh, at the Desert X Prix uh, through through TikTok. Um, and I think those kind of broadcast partners in the new newer age to to see Twitch and TikTok come on um, and take on increased increased load, I guess, in terms of getting the content out there uh, to the to the to the audience is is really great to see. Yeah, and I think this is something that we spoke about in in the last episode. We were talking about just having such a nice kind of wealth of places to to watch the racing and, and interact with Extreme. This just adds another level. And I was going to make a similar point about, you know, what the kids are into. But because younger people tend to be more engaged with environmental issues, um, having Twitch on board as, you know, a platform for younger people who are digitally savvy and so on um, is such a great way to kind of get it out to those people who are more engaged with this kind of stuff. So it's the same with, you know, if we look at the electric car market and electrification, Again, younger people um, are are more more inclined towards electric vehicles or taking public transport or car sharing, so it's a really nice kind of um, partnership in that respect of 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 how these audiences can interact and consume and um, get more access to Extreme. Yeah, absolutely. It's really meeting the fan where where they are. We also see uh, Coral Eyewear uh, joining as a as a sunglasses partner. Um, and also one that I was interested in uh, was Polymateria. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit when we're talking about legacy projects. Um, but a really interesting project called Lifecycle, where they've set up um, effectively a, a bin um, in, uh, in Senegal, uh, where you can actually see their product, which is a plastic designed to biodegrade within one year. We saw drivers throwing their plastic cups in there. Uh, made of uh, made of this product, um, which in one year, if Extreme E goes back, we should see that the the cups have all biodegraded. Really interesting, considering the massive use of plastics and and the impact that they have. And generally, it takes you know a hundred thousand years for for plastics to to fully uh, rot away, and still it leaves microplastics and beads behind it. And it doesn't really go and it certainly won't go within our lifetime that actually a a plastic can biodegrade within one year is a is a huge step forward for that technology yeah it's really incredible and i feel like you know as much as we can recycle things single-use plastics are a huge problem so having a product that will you know biodegrade in in one year it is a game changer surely yeah, you'd have to think. And I think, again, Extreme E is using its platform to showcase this kind of technology uh, in order that it can be more widely adopted. So I think if uh, people are looking at where they are going to be using plastics next, they should be looking at uh, how Lifecycle and, and what Polymateria are doing uh, could be an option for them. Yeah, absolutely. 
Jess, I hear that um, Excite were already um, having conversations with Polymateria about the about the packaging for um, for their drinks. Um, so again, you know, immediately the impact can be uh, can be seen. Yeah, and again, you know, we're seeing what a great platform this is for for bringing companies together who are like minded and have the same values. And you know, it might be that that Excite would have never known about this company, you know, had it not been for you know, both being on the same platform. Exactly right. And um, speaking of partnerships, we've got something of a of quite a warm and fuzzy story where uh, we hear about Apt Cupra and Veloce. Uh, they were sharing their people. Um, so where they both had f- fairly broken cars in one area or another after the, the Desert X Prix, um, we hear that App Cooper and Veloce were um, using their people who had the right complementary skills to fix each other's cars. Um, great story that, and um, rather than kind of using the, the carbon footprint to fly people out from Spark Technology uh, to fix the problem, actually they were able to do it without adding to the, the climate footprint, but I just love that they were able to help each other out in that way. And of course, competition is one thing, but the, the bigger purpose is, a, is another. Yeah, and I think this is a this, this reminds me so much of the nicer aspects of like club racing and grassroots motorsport. And thinking of you know the paddocks that I've been in when I was running my Porsche team, and you know since then doing my racing mentor thing, is how if a car breaks or you know someone needs a part or you know someone needs to go get an engine from like miles and miles away everyone kind of clubs together to kind of make it happen and it, it's such good sportsmanship um and obviously in the extreme extreme e aspect as well there's there's the environmental bonus of using people who are there who are on site um so i like that i like that kind of camaraderie that they have that you don't really find in other like top tier motorsport where it would be a you know everyone for themselves kind of attitude yeah the the kind of shark pit is is not really visible here it's uh, it's much more collegiate and collaborative um which i think is is great uh I'd, although when now that we're getting onto the onto the racing you didn't see a, a lot of that uh collegiate mentality on on track the the ocean x pre really threw up some fantastic racing um and some fantastic imagery as well what did you think of the uh of the ocean x pre jess I thought it was great. There was some just fantastic side-by-side racing that I think that we didn't get so much in the Desert X Prix. Um, and just, you know, the, the vistas of like, you know, the, the straight along the beach and everything like that. I just think that, you know, the track itself, the course itself was just just great for, for side-by-side racing. And what I really liked was the options of different lines. So, you know, that there was then that excitement of, you know, someone's gone this way, someone's gone that way. What's going to happen at the end? Um, but then, you know, those, those tight corners, bumpy sections that had, you know, cars <laughs> rubbing quite a lot as they were, you know, battling for position. I just thought it made for some great racing. Yeah, it really did. And you're and you're right about that backdrop of the ocean. It really it was a constant. It served as a constant reminder about uh, about why they went to went to Senegal. Um but also it, on that start finish straight, there was wet sand, there was dry sand, there was deeper sand, all offering different levels of, of grip. And I, I thought, especially in the early rounds, uh, seeing uh, somebody like Christofferson in the RXR car 
um, taking a, a different line into into turn one. Oh, that's interesting, and um, carrying huge momentum through um, those those turns, and you slowly saw other people kind of cottoning onto onto how 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 to take that first corner, but also. As you say, taking those different lines, it was all about for me. I, I was watching it and reflecting on it and thinking, it was all about momentum that that circuit. Because where you had some deeper sand and you might kind of bog down, it seemed to be about carrying speed as much as you can, however you can, through through all of the different elements of the circuit. Yeah, and I think you know there were there were a couple of instances where you you saw someone going really slow, and you're like, what's happened? And it's just you know it's the nature of the course. If you get something a little bit wrong, you're going to need to completely slow down before you can put the power down again to to make the next corner. And you know I think uh, you know another interesting aspect as well was because it's that was that long straight. Um, it was really interesting to see how people were using their hyperdrive. And, you know, how people were kind of timing it to, to get the, you know, the, the better run down that beach. Yeah, the hyperdrive was, um, it really, be, it became quite, quite an important tactical decision, perhaps more so than, than the Desert Expri. Um, quite a tactical decision. Some people were leaving it until the end. Some people were leaving it for off the start. Some people were leaving it for 10 seconds off the start when they get out of the, the deep sand where, where people were using it were... Uh, it was it was really interesting to see, and of course, where where some teams actually used it, you know, kind of at the end of the start finish straight, and then had a braking problem into into turn one. Um, you kind of saw it saw it all. Um, so, moving into into qualifying, we saw quite a similar similar story where um, Lewis Hamilton's X forty four and Nico Rosberg's RXR uh, topped the timings. Um, we saw. Actually, the Loeben Gutierrez combination and X44 really quick in, in both qualifying sessions. Um, they really do seem to be the, the class of the field at the moment. Yeah, and, you know, this is, I mean, is this what we expected just for Rosberg and Hamilton to essentially be battling it out again on track, which is quite nice? Um, I think just the the pedigree of those drivers um, and, you know, the the types of racing that they come from and their, you know, off-road experience is, is, you know, it's a testament to how perfect that is for, for this kind of environment. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think we, we also saw with JBXE, uh, Excite uh, and uh, and Veloce, they all put in pretty reasonable performances, but due to some uh, problems with with other teams, um, they kind of naturally went through to the to the semi semi finals as long as they had uh, trouble free free runs. Um, so it was a bit of a shame uh, for the Aciona Science car um, who didn't finish um they had a they had a problem uh, which relegated them to the to the shootout um and both uh andretti united and the chip ganassi team um had problems in in qualifying which really ended their their weekend and and saw them both into the into the shootout the andretti and the chip ganassi um teams both both had problems I'm still not sure what what they were, but they just lost time on on the circuit through having to slow down and and stop. It just seemed like they had um, they had problems that, that effectively ended their weekend. It shows that you know as much as quick racing and you know taking the right line and you know the tactics of hyperdrive and things like that as important as they are, 
sometimes it's just important to you know keep the car running make a clean race and you know almost by yeah default you would go through because you've been you've been one of the ones to be able to kind of you know keep it where it's supposed to be and and not kind of break down or have those problems um and again i think that's that's a, a big part of racing is that sometimes those that can keep their nose clean even if they're not necessarily the fastest are often going to do well and be more consistent than perhaps people that that push it or try something risky that then doesn't work out. Completely, completely agree with that, and we see that um, a lot, and we've seen that actually with um, with people involved uh, in it in Extreme E, like Lewis Hamilton, where it's just a consistent, relentless uh, accrual of of points that actually sees you kind of rise and rise to to the top. That consistency uh, does mean finals in in Extreme E, so. Yeah, it was, and it and it just shows the three who had problems did end up in the in the shootout. Mm. And actually, I think that shootout was was uh, you know, it was such a it was such a great shootout. You know, and some of the passes from you know people like um, Leduc who that just just incredible overtaking on on a, a really interesting and exciting course. Um, and you know, when I was watching the race I was absolutely shouting at my television um and disturbing everyone in my house um because it, it it really was that exciting and that was that was just the shootout yeah Carla Duke for me was one of the undoubted stars of the of the weekend even suffering that problem and being in the shootout he went from third to first on on his leg he had two overtakes he took the fastest sector two which meant the uh uh, additional five points in the super sector challenge um, and to be honest I don't think there were some but I think he was easily the most committed driver especially in his sector in or his section in the shootout um, that I've seen in Extreme E so far um, he just has a I think it's a, a, a different kind of mentality maybe it's coming from truck racing I don't know but it's just foot down flat out see what happens um and yeah i think he was he was a real star that weekend yeah agree it's, it's like so much commitment to those passes um i can't even begin to imagine how you do that like i've got a kind of a sense of like how you would approach an overtake on a circuit but on something you know that's that's got bumps and dips and you know cambered corners and all of that kind of thing just blows my mind a word for Apt Cupra, um, who lost Claudia Hedgen, um, who was out with illness and replaced by the um, by Jutta Kleinschmidt, um, who had good pace in in qualifying, uh, but when it came down to uh, their semi final, um, then was they had a little bit of an issue uh, in terms of getting away on the uh, getting away at the switchover. They seemed to have a communications issue in in semi final one. Um, which saw the Apt Cooper go from uh, first place to last, which was never recovered um, after Rosberg Racing and X44 ended up taking um, P1 and P2 respectively. Um, but it really seemed to be a, a race thrown away um, by that by that switchover for Apt Cooper. They they had a healthy lead. 
Yeah, and you could see the, you know, the frustration in the car uh, at not being able to kind of, uh, you know, pull away, you know, in a timely fashion from that switchover. And I think it was, you know, there was an unplugged comms lead or something like that. So, yeah, super frustrating. Um, you know, they could have been, you know, battling for, for a podium. Yeah, we don't often see those who get out in front like that um, lose lose those kind of kind of lead so I think it really was um, I guess it's one of the challenges of the of the switchover isn't it you have to unplug you have to plug back in if something goes wrong in that in that switchover then it can cause a even if something as simple as a comms lead can cause a a failure for your race yeah and it's so easy when watching motorsport to forget that it's a team sport and you know that those who are involved in getting the cars ready you know managing the switchover comms all of that kind of thing are as much of part of the team as the drivers are um but I'm, I'm pretty sure they won't make that that same mistake again and you know that comms lead will be plugged in every time now yeah they'll have a big big red sticker on it uh to, to yeah. remind <laughs> to remind people um and actually they, those kind of those leads were were seen in semi-final two as well jbxe took a huge lead um, as uh, the Excite and Veloce cars uh, with Ollie Bennett and Jamie Chadwick in them um, kind of battled each other backwards, I, I would say. Uh, it allowed uh, uh, Kevin Hansen, in, who came in for, for Jensen Button, um, it allowed the JBXE car to stretch out a, a really good lead that it, it never lost. Veloce and Excite uh, battling over the last place in the final um, with uh, Sarazen and Christine uh, resuming the battle uh, after the after the switchover, um, and there was some good good passing both Bennett on Chadwick and Sarazen then on uh, on Christine GZ, um, and a lot of side by side action in in this one. Um, but it seemed to be, as you mentioned, the hyperdrive use uh, that decided it, Jess. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's why I think this is a great tactical kind of kind of thing to have is, um, you know, when do you use that hyperdrive? Like, yes, we're going to use it on the straight potentially, but where on the straight? When are you pressing that button? And I think that's that's a really interesting aspect to this. But I thought that the semi-final really showed just how great Sarazan's driving was. Um, and, you know, seeing all of these cars kind of side by side. But yeah, it, it, it was it was that drive from Sarazan and, and getting that kind of that that final place in the um, in, in the final was just was just incredible. It really was. And it ultimately ended up um, there that the format change that we saw for this weekend and that we lost the, the crazy race, uh, the semifinals had two slots going through to the to the final each we ended up with a four uh, four car grid for the for the final which it was really down to the to the type of circuit and the safety and the visibility um, that the that the Dakar circuit was able to to offer uh, that we could run a four car grid I believe mm. how do you uh, moving on to the to the final how excited were you to see a four car grid grid Jess and uh, how disappointed that by turn one we were down to two cars yeah I mean you know just just the 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 images of you know four cars racing side by side along the beach was brilliant and it was you know it's it's always exciting when you can see more wheel to wheel racing um 
but you know perhaps four cars was too many or you know I, I don't know what it was but you know that contact after that first corner bringing us down to the two cars was perhaps frustrating but uh, exciting nonetheless. It brought out a red flag at, at switchover due to the contact between uh, well I guess there were two discrete bits of contact between JBXE and Veloce and X44 and and RXR. Um, it brought back uh, brought back memories of Rosberg and Hamilton uh, coming together when they were both racing for for Mercedes Grand Prix. Um, but it seemed like there was a car that came off worse in both of those bits of of contact. Um, ultimately, JBXE and X44 cannot not complete the first lap and that brought out a red flag so he had a bit of a delay at the switch over um uncharted territory i guess for for extreme e about having a blocks block track and recovering uh, the stricken cars from the from the track um what did you think because molly taylor had, had built up a really nice lead but it all kind of lost with the with going back to a a standing start yeah, so it was really interesting to kind of see the the standing start. And it was like we almost got, you know, two races in one. And, you know, although Chadwick in, in the Veloce car, you know, dropped back almost immediately, you know, as a circuit racer, um, it, it was really interesting to see how she, as a really kind of clean and precise driver, w- was able just to kind of get to this point in the final um, just by putting in a good drive. And although she doesn't have the same kind of, off-road experiences you know someone like Christofferson who who you know pulled away from her after that that's that um standing start um I think we're going to see some some real kind of progress and improvement from Chadwick because I think the type of driver she is she she learns quickly and you know from all of the different kind of forms of motorsport that I've seen her in you know whether it's you know the sports car racing to you know single-seated stuff with W series and um now going into something very different like Extreme E, I think she's going to keep kind of improving and being able to kind of catch up with those on the grid who perhaps have more of this off-road experience than she might. Yeah, is you can you can see the development, and of course she's had um, a, one weekend's less running as well, and to find to find yourself in a in a final against somebody like uh, like uh, Johan Christofferson um, and really did keep him honest um, throughout that throughout that final. Uh, that final stage um, was was fantastic because one slip from Christofferson, Chadwick would have been would have been right there. So um, hugely hugely promising weekend for for Veloce. I think we saw from them what we would have wanted to see in in Saudi, uh, and it really shows that actually maybe it's not just uh, Rosberg Racing and X44, but there are certainly other teams that have pedigree and strength that are going to going to challenge um but ultimately it was rxr that finished out the the winners the second race uh in a row um and we are starting to see them kind of pull away a little bit in the in the standings yeah and i think you know this this just goes to show you know the we talked about this in the last episode that you know the setup of the team and and the drivers they have that experience and you know, I I don't necessarily want them to dominate for the rest of the rest of you know the season, um, and I do think we'll see others who you know there there were challenges for for Rosberg X Racing um, into this race, but obviously 
with those issues and with, with various problems like throughout throughout the you know the whole of the the Ocean X pre they just did a great job to to kind of keep it out there and keep going but had others not had had those problems I don't think they would have had maybe such an easy ride absolutely yeah so onto the standings uh, we have uh, in first position uh, Nico Rosberg's RXR racing on 71 points uh, second place X44 Despite a fourth place uh, finish in the final, X44 has 57 points. JBXC are third with 44 points. Andretti United, 37, the same as Excite Energy. Uh, the Science Acciona team, just one point behind with 36. And one point behind them, the Apt Cupra and Veloce, who really took nothing from the Desert X Prix, have now moved up into eighth place um, after the Ocean X Prix on 31 points with... Segi TV, Chip Ganassi racing on 30 points at the bottom of the pile. But all very close there from ninth up until uh, fourth, you'd have to say, Jess. Yeah, and we're only on the second race of the season. So, you know, I guess at this point, really anything could happen. And it probably will. Uh, yep. <laughs> is that, that's a Murray Walkerism, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> this is the three E's. Moving on then, um, I think with Carla Duke's heroics, it's worth having a quick look at, at Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, so Jess, they have a massive racing heritage Chip Gana- uh, with the Chip Ganassi name behind it. Um, how surprised were you to see uh, a team like Chip Ganassi Racing show up in Extreme when the when the teams were announced? I was quite surprised, but then when you, you actually kind of look back through their history... It, it makes perfect sense because they've been such a part of almost every large motorsport series. Of course, they're going to be part of Extreme E because it's, you know, it's the new exciting thing. So although, you know, I wasn't really expecting necessarily, you know, veterans of IndyCar and NASCAR to, to necessarily, you know, jump at the chance to do something with electric motorsport. Now it kind of makes sense that, that they'd want to get involved in this and, you know, it's great to have such a huge name in the sport. Absolutely. I think for, for me and, and with uh, the Andretti United team, seeing really those those two massive names or three massive names with United mm. um, coming into, into Extreme E, it really did make me think about what the representation um, would be in the in the United States with, with Extreme E. Um, you have really the followers of NASCAR and IndyCar uh, and the IMSA GT series where um, where Ganassi um, go, goes racing um, are really hardcore fans and they definitely follow teams, you know. Um, so it, it'll be interesting for, for me to see how that kind of translates into support also of the, of the Extreme E team, especially when you have two American drivers as well, Sarah Price and, and Carl LeDuc, who come from... Um, very much off-road backgrounds but of course off-roading in the US is is slightly different to what we're seeing with with Extreme E and perhaps um, Rally in uh, in the World Rally Championship and, and comparable series like that. Yeah I think I think the the backgrounds of both both Price and LeDuc are actually really relevant to Extreme E though so although yes very different to you know um, Rally in Europe or Rally Cross in Europe because both of them have done truck racing I actually think that's that's so good for Extreme E because, you know, truck racing is taking, you know, um, 
a really kind of large, heavy vehicle off-road and racing it. Um, and really, Extreme isn't actually that much different, apart from it's kind of electric. But, you know, these are still kind of large, heavy SUVs. So I think that that's a great combo to have these two, you know, experienced off-road racers who have this, you know, this truck element to, to their history. Um, it is really great. And like you say, I think, you know, fans in the US do tend to be that they'll stick more kind of rigidly to this is my team, this is my driver. Whereas I think kind of in Europe and certainly in the UK, we're a bit more kind of free about it. We've got a lot of drivers that we like rather than, you know, the the one that we follow. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like a perfect series for for these kind of drivers from, as you say, motocross and rallying background. Um, Sarah Price also, you know, looking at the X Games and stadium super trucks. Um, Extreme E seems seems perfect. And similarly with, with Carl LeDuc, um, absolutely phenomenal, you know, the, the impact that he's making in, in Extreme E. Uh, I can see that he would be a, a huge favourite um, back in his back in his home country and in his home home series, which begs the question: What do you think the uh, the engagement from the from the US is is with Extreme E, and and what what can it be? I imagine it's it's like with anywhere. I think we all kind of came into it not entirely sure what to expect, um, but I think what's really relevant to kind of the the US market and US motorsport fans is that Extreme is is big and it's dramatic, but it's also kind of quick and easy to, to digest. So I think that, you know, anyone who is thinking, oh, I want to dip into this, I'm going to see what it's, it's like, I think whether they're in the US or anywhere, you, you're really going to see people going, oh, that was exciting. Um, and I want to watch more of it. And then if, if they're anything like me, be disappointed that we don't have so much more um, on a race weekend. But I, I just think, you know, that style of dramatic off-road racing, that's, 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 it's big, there's lots happening. You know, the cars are exciting, they're different. I think that'll appeal to anyone who, you know, likes the, the bright light and the excitement of maybe NASCAR or IndyCar or even something like IMSA, which is maybe a bit more kind of, precise but um i think you know extreme is really appealing in so many different ways to so many different types of motorsport fans yeah absolutely and i think um you know to have the have the fans is one thing and i definitely think those those drivers will be will be bringing eyeballs to the to the series no doubt you need a place to watch it and what's been fantastic from extreme e's point of view um is that they also have some really really great broadcast partners in north america um so it'll be on discovery's eurosport network um which is which is no mean thing um and also on fox sports um which will go throughout the united states canada and the and the caribbean um so the extremely has seen the seen the potential of the of the u.s market it's it's absolutely brought in u.s teams with u.s drivers um so as a territory for Extreme, you'd have to say that the US is is a key market um, for the for the success of the series. Can you imagine a uh, a race happening in the United States, Jess? You you have so so much incredible choice for terrain as well. Um, you know, yeah, I can absolutely see something happening in the US. Um, I think it, you know it'd be so exciting to see you know something mountainous or you know uh, the kind of you know 
badlands kind of thing that they have in, in in the US would be would be incredible and I think there's a lot of opportunity there and perhaps something that we might see in future seasons bringing your electric vehicle um, and future of mobility uh, hat on uh, Jess electrification in the in the US you kind of immediately think of Tesla um, but what is the what is the status of, of electrification in the United States at the moment and and I guess kind of really how does that compare with what's happening globally with the EV movement so I think it might seem like the US is perhaps a bit behind where we are maybe in Europe because you know they don't have all of these rulings of you know we're going to stop selling petrol and diesel vehicles by year X um, but it's actually there are a lot of people out there who are already driving hybrids and have been for a long time um, and electric vehicles are you know slowly kind of being adopted in, in more of an organic way so less pushed by the government than we might have here and you know that there's some really really interesting kind of statistics in terms of you know, people in the US, um, how they are adopting these these vehicles. I don't know those stats off the top of my head, but I think it's happening in a way where, you know, there there are obviously companies like Tesla who are really, really leading the market. And because of that kind of long range that Tesla has over maybe, you know, another manufacturer, that's perfect for, you know, the long distances that you often have to travel in the US. Um, But I think now brands are thinking more globally and, and not just about how they can sell in their perhaps their home territory but how they can they can sell elsewhere and what's going to happen in the future so you see brands like um gmc who are thinking about well, okay well what can we do to go electric and you know obviously other us brands like ford already have their own um evs and i think that in the us we're going to see a shift but it's going to I don't think it's going to necessarily follow how how things are happening in Europe and I think it's quite an interesting thing to kind of watch from afar but you know President Biden's doing a great job in in pushing things like this forward which perhaps wasn't done previously electric's going to become more of a more of an option there yeah it seems so and I think um, depending on how you cut down you know the the figure because US the US transportation sector um, is responsible for for just under thirty percent of uh, of all of the greenhouse gas emissions in the in the country. Um, so it, it makes up a huge uh, a huge portion of of the impact that's happening. And what we know from from President Biden's approach is that he's certainly looking at the data a lot more closely than than his predecessor, uh, and is actually incentivizing and, and pushing this this forward a little bit to the to the point where around 20 million EVs will be deployed by um, by 2030 um, which is uh, I think going to be a really you know it's a really big sea change in terms of in terms of fossil fuel powered cars into into electric vehicles in terms of the representation in in extreme e you have um, Cupra um, who being Spanish, uh, a Spanish company, but owned by by Volkswagen, um, you have the Hummer um, with the electric electric Hummer kind of um, being being represented on the Chip Ganassi car, um, but also Lotus and and the fact that they're looking at um, or or actively involved in in 
making an EV. Um, we uh, do you see a bit of international representation, but do you think there's there's an opportunity for 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 more electric vehicle manufacturers to be involved in in extreme e? Yeah, absolutely, and I think especially as SUVs and electric SUVs are, you know, such a, a hot commodity at the moment, and that's kind of where the electric vehicle market is. It, it kind of makes sense for the, these brands to kind of come on board and show their faces almost. Um, I think that because Motorsport is such a good like test bed for these brands as well, there's a lot that they can learn. Obviously, that they're, they're slightly limited in that you know we're using the the, the Spark EV. But I think, you know, just just with, you know, what Hummer are doing in, you know, that little bit of branding and those subtle kind of like styling changes to the bodywork of the car makes it appear very Hummer. And it, it, it says to the world, there's going to be an electric Hummer. How cool is that? Um, and again, with this this US audience who might be thinking, oh, but I want, you know, a big truck or, you know, I don't want a, a small little city car if I'm going to have an EV. You know, again, Extreme is saying, no, but you can have something that is this capable that's also electric. So I think, you know, there's there's lots of benefits to to being in Extreme E. I think Lotus is a really interesting one as well, because um, quite recently they announced that they are going to be all electric. They're going to make one more um, petrol powered sports car that's going to cost a small fortune. And then it's going to be all electric sports cars from there on in. So again, I think this is just the way that the world is moving now and the shift towards electric is that more and more of these brands who are wanting to draw attention to the fact that, hey, we're making electric cars and they're cool and they're fun and they're technologically advanced are going to be using platforms like Extreme E and of course Formula E and so many others have uh, to, to really kind of put that message out there. Yeah, absolutely. And and given that there are so many territories and we were, we were speaking before about you know the kind of like the latent impact of of china that's yet to yet to be seen um there there's there's definitely more evs kind of and ev manufacturers out there than than even we're we're seeing at the at the moment um with that in mind jess a kind of on the spot question for you really is what one EV brand would you like to see represented in Extreme E? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think a company like Lucid, who they, it was a, a US company kind of formed by ex-Tesla staff, but they're making this incredible, they're making the Lucid Air, which is just a really just beautiful vehicle with a long range. It's got this kind of like airline inspired seating inside and I think, although they're not going for this kind of rugged look, um, I think that just saying, hey, we're, we're in this, we're doing this, you know, if you want an electric car, come have something that is, you know, super luxury, would be really cool. But then there's brands like Rivian. So Rivian are, you know, full, beautiful off-road vehicles with, you know, they have an SUV and a truck. And I think that's super relevant to Extreme E. So, you know, there's two sides of it. There's the electric cars are fun and exciting and here's a super luxury one for your commute to work or there's a hey do you want something that can do this kind of off-roading that happens to be electric with Rivian and like GMC is doing with Hummer I think there's so there's just so many opportunities for for brands to kind of jump on board and 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 get involved and, and get people excited about the vehicles that they're creating 
I'm starting to build up a picture now of what your uh, perfect garage looks like, Jess. Yeah, I've just described it right there. (laughs) (laughs) This is the three E's. Speaking of engagement to electric vehicles, I was lucky enough to speak to David Orr and Emmanuel Ali Mansouray recently uh, about a really special project uh, that Emmanuel has has been undertaking in Sierra Leone. Um, but first I spoke with David, uh, who is a trade and investment director, who has also been recognized by the Global UN Compact in 2020 uh, for his sustainability work um, and is committed to advancing STEM education in underserved communities in West Africa. So a perfect time to speak to David and Emmanuel uh, about the projects they've been working on. This is the three So David, um, you uh, work with an NGO uh, called Science Resources Africa. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do. Thanks, Tristan. So Science Resources Africa is a organization that was founded uh, just over 10 years ago, and it uh, aims to promote access to scientific resources, learning, uh, and opportunities for innovation um, in West Africa. Uh, it was founded by uh, an individual um, who's still the director, um, Dr. Bridget Bannerman. Um, who works at the University of Cambridge. And so Bridget is from, uh, from Sierra Leone and uh, with her experience uh, working at universities um, around the world um, in really advanced uh, biochemistry um, and also recognizing some of the challenges that uh, face uh, scientific learning um, in, in West Africa and access to, to, to quality uh, scientific resources, um, she set it up. And so for the, for the past uh, five years or so, uh, since we met, um, we've been uh, developing high school programs, um, uh, workshops, uh, innovation challenges uh, on, a, on an annual basis um, to try and really promote uh, the guiding ethos of the, of the organization, which is how we can create a low cost, but high impact and very much um, African led response to, uh, to quality science and uh, providing those uh, those opportunities. Fantastic, thank you. That sounds, that sounds like really important work. So with, with the promotion of, of STEM education in, in Africa, um, how do you see that correlate with what you're seeing uh, with Extreme E and, and with that coming to West Africa? Um, what, what is the opportunity there, do you think, for, for furthering STEM education um, in West Africa? Yeah, so the Extreme E uh, initiative in Senegal is really, really exciting. Uh, I think it's, it's, not, uh, it's not terribly common to see races of this sort um, in the region. And I think particularly to have such a, a well-supported um, organization uh, like Extreme E to, to deliver a, uh, an event of this scale is really quite exciting. So a lot of the work that we do with Science Resources Africa is more focused on the, on the medical front and the biology front. So looking at uh, antimicrobial resistance, genomic sequencing, um, drug discovery, and so on. But I think there's some real common tenets there with what Extreme E is trying to do. And it's saying, right, the world is changing and we need to change with it. And part of that change is climate, of course, but it's also looking at where uh, the innovation lies. And it's not simply from the global north anymore. It's very much driven um, as a partnership um, and often as a south-south partnership as well. And I think that's what's really exciting here about seeing Extreme E is that it, they're not focused just on uh, the classic circuits or, or the classic um, racing countries 
of say 20 years ago, who are really trying to uh, bring their message of, of innovation and sustainable innovation uh, to the uh, to to the world. Um, and as I see, you know, they're, they're competing in Greenland, Saudi, uh, Senegal. It's really quite exciting to see that. And I think that the common message that you know we're all in this together and we're all in this exciting innovation journey together as well is a real lesson um, and quite an inspirational one uh, that uh, we're seeing from Extreme E in, in Senegal. Absolutely agree. And I think the interesting part of that is, okay, STEM um, or racing might excite people into a, into a career in STEM, but it doesn't necessarily have to focus just on racing. That can actually deviate into all sorts of different different fields, as you say, in terms of uh, whether it be medical or climate or, or something else. Um, but the inspiration can actually come from just seeing a, an event like Extreme E come to the come to the region so with that in mind uh how do you think extreme will excite people in in west africa as it as it hosts this race i think the i think the question really is how can it not excite people i mean it is it's amazing i mean seeing just you know the, the glossy approach that it has to to doing this you've got such cool cars um it's backed by some of the biggest names in, in motorsport and doing it in the most dramatic locations. It's, it's really exciting. And I think it also demonstrates that, you know, that this isn't the preserve of a small clutch of countries um, which have existing race circuits. That, no, this is something that can be shared, shared around the world. And I think that's what's so exciting here is that you have you know, the gravitas is provided by, by the, the race teams um, and, and who they're backed and supported by. Um, you're having fantastic technology in terms of the hydrogen powered um, uh, approach um, that Extreme E is taking, and you're just doing it in the most exciting environments, and it's, it's ones that are local to far more people around the world, simply because uh, the spread of the, the tracks um, and the races that Extreme E are using is just that much more diverse. And so I think, you know, it's, it's in some ways, it's almost like a dream come to life seeing these exciting vehicles um, in such amazing places uh, and using such cool and future thinking technology to achieve it. I think that's what's really exciting here is that for the, for the first time, as you mentioned, in, in, in years, um, you know, the, the Dakar rally hasn't really been in Senegal for a long time. And now a different and more arguably sustainable uh, approach to racing is coming back um, in, uh, in the end of May. And that's something that's really quite exciting. Emmanuel, you have been called the Elon Musk of Sierra Leone. Uh, you built a, a solar-powered car um, out of trash, effectively. Um, what inspired you to do this? Yeah, f first of all, I would like to say, you know, um, I, am ag I am against anything that disturbs the environment and disturbs another climate, because if we have a very conducive environment and a very good climate, you know, we have a very peaceful atmosphere. And so um, most of the fossil vehicles we are using here you know, they emit carbon monoxide into the atmosphere, which is very dangerous for our health. You know, it's sometimes caused asthma, lung cancer, lung cancer, and all sorts of dangerous diseases in our health. So when, when I saw the problem, I said, oh, this is a problem needs to be solved. Because um, even myself, I, I don't know um, um, what have what, what been the negative um, um, impact to my, to my system because um, pollution is, is almost high here. You know, um, vehicular emitting carbon monoxide, um, generators, you know, and all sorts of, of plants that emit carbon monoxide. So I don't know for my own health. So when I saw the problem, I said, this is a problem that needs a possible solution. 
And um, I said, let me go into the research and see what I could do. You know, um, it, it was very difficult for me, you know, because there was no resources, no nothing. And, um, but I never give up. So when I saw the problem, I said, oh, you know, let me give it a try. Let me see how best I could do. Because um, if I start thinking that I don't have any resources, you know, I would just sit and, and say, let me wait for resources. But I, I never did. I said, well, let me just try what I, what I could do. So these are some of the problems that I saw that inspired me to, to do, to build this um, the solar car. You saw a problem and you acted. What kind of, uh, what kind of knowledge did you have to, to build a car? And, and how, did you, how did you teach yourself how to, one, build a car, but then also uh, make it solar powered? Yeah, I, um, I would say I am a, a self-taught, you know, I'm self, a self-taught engineer, um, a creative thinker, you know, you know what it means, you know, nobody taught me engineering or nobody taught me how to build a car or how to design. I taught myself. It's just something I, I, I could imagine and, and uh, I put it to practice, you know, it's, that's why I named it Imagination Car because it was anything I had that I imagined then it come to reality. So um, I would say this, this is my gift, this is my talent, and uh, it's, it's, it's part of me. So <laughs> it's, something, it's something like um, something amazing or uh, something crazy, but nobody taught me to build any car or another design a car. It's just part of me. Fantastic. And in, an inherent skill. It's natural within you to, to be able to design and, and think about things from a, from a technological point of, of view. How important is it in places like Sierra Leone and in Africa as a, as a big continent uh, that actually education around science and engineering and design, how, in, how important is it to, to get that kind of education in, on the continent? Like Science Resource Africa, they have been, uh, I would say, a backbone to our educational system in Sierra Leone because they have made a lot of people to identify their potential a lot of people to know their what, you know, because um, for the past five years, they've been conducting um, a quiz competition, a scientific competition for, for, for innovators around Sierra Leone. You know, more than 90, 90% of the school particip participated. So um, there have been a brainstorm between the schools, you know, like, um, like a competition. They're going for a competition. And then, you know, I, I would say Science Resources Africa make me to realize that I have a potential. They make me to realize that I'm, I'm, I'm gifted, I have the talent to. They, they are doing extremely well here in Sierra Fantastic. What excites you about seeing a major event like Extreme E come to Senegal? What, what excites you about Extreme E coming to West Africa? Well, this is fantastic. And uh, if we may have the opportunity of this being in, in, in Africa, particularly in West Africa, I said that would be a great one. And, and today, and I have heard about it, that the event is going to take place in Senegal. So I'm so grateful for that. You know, that would be fine. That's fine, you know. It's so fantastic. It's so amazing. And I, I just wish I could witness this event and to see um, um, something like this, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really great, you know, to, to have this information. It's really great. So for you, Emmanuel, um, what is next? Are you doing, um, are you making more sustainability related projects? What are you, what are you focusing on for the future? Yeah, for, uh, for now, and, um, you know, this, this is my second project, my, sec my, my second life project, because I'm, during the year 2018, I designed a solar tricycle for persons with disability. 
you know, for them to have a easing and affordable transportation and for make the, the environment very friendly for them. So, um, and again, I've designed a solar car. So, uh, my, my next move is to see how this solar car should be ex established around Sierra Leone and even some parts of Africa and even some parts of the world, you know, so, so people could be using it, you know. Um, the, the, the United Sustainable Development Goals, um, I would say particularly Goal 7, we talk about clean and affordable energy. They are trying to work how best they could, they could achieve it to meet the year 2030. So um, I, I, I am a change maker, so I want to contribute my own best uh, to see how best we be able to achieve Goal 7 of the Sustainable Development Goals. We talk about clean and affordable energy. So I'll be very grateful to see my product out and uh, people using it and uh, um, create a positive impact on the life of people. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Um, David, Emmanuel's story is is really something quite inspiring. Um, how do you see this being typical or atypical um, in in Africa from from your vantage point with Science Resources Africa? It's an amazing story that uh, that Emmanuel has. I mean, building that car and seeing you know the, the imagination car come to life. It's really cool to see. I, I particularly like that it's emblazoned with the, the flag of Sierra Leone on the side, um, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great initiative. I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testament to you know, every, every, everywhere around the world there, if people are passionate about sustainability, passionate about you know, developing something new and better, you just get on and do it. And I think that's what's, that's what's so exciting here. I mean, it's, it's well known that um, most of the global South has less access to to VC funding or to um, other financial vehicles to really give their startups um, the, the leg up that uh, might be afforded to more more privileged uh, startups elsewhere in the world, um, and so as a result, it, there's a, there's a greater degree of hardship that's often um, experienced in terms of getting that uh, getting that uh, innovation going. But I think what's so exciting here is that you know it, what Emmanuel demonstrates is just how how possible it is. That you can make a real impact um, with uh, with just you know what, what's what's around you, and I think as we see more and more engagement with with West Africa, so you know we're seeing this through Science Resources Africa and you know the work that we're doing with Raspberry Pi computers and 3D printers and genomic sequencing and so on, um, but also just with Extreme E as well and seeing them putting um, putting Senegal back on the map as a as a racing destination it's a lot more exciting to see that there are these ties and these links um, that are being built um, to try and foster innovation and foster more of a legacy of um, sustainable development uh, than we've seen for a long time. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, to go back to your question, I think it's, it's less atypical and more typical um, of, of the initiatives uh, that we see across West Africa and, and quite frankly, across the global South in, in general. Um, in terms of having uh, having the, the passion and the the, um, the ability to to make really cool, really rewarding innovations happen, um, but using them in a in a, um, in a in a low cost way, and I think that's a lesson which I hope um, can be uh, can be shared not just in the region uh, through Extreme E, but really globally because it's just it's the future. You know, it's uh, it's a very exciting way forward. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. David, thank you for your time today. And Emmanuel, thank you also for, for sharing your, your fantastic story and, and keep up the great work. Great. Thanks, Tristan. This is the three E's.
So Jess, what do you think of, of a project like Emmanuel's where he has thought climate change is a problem, I also need a car, I'm going to build a car that is solar powered uh, and an electric vehicle um, out of things that I can find. He's completely self-taught and he's just decided to do this. How, how amazing is that? What, what do you think of a, of a project like that? It's so cool. And like, you know, just the, the, the innovative thinking of I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, teach myself how to do it is really cool. But I think it, you know, it shows that if if we want to do something, we should just go out and do it. And I think there's, you know, there's an important kind of message there in terms of personal growth, because I think a lot of us think I'd love to do that thing and then never do. But I think it also has obviously the important environmental message of this is possible. And it shows that, you know, building something in that way and, and powering it in that way is possible. And, you know, again, this is something that we could be looking at in the future in maybe a more, you know, mainstream, mainstream way. So you you can probably remind me of the of the history um, and, and the development of the of the technology of it. Um, electric vehicles but given that Emmanuel's car uh, can go 15 kilometers an hour on a on a kind of constant solar charge as an electric vehicle how impressive is that it doesn't I mean you would say 15 kilometers an hour it's not much but how long ago were battery powered electric vehicles only going 15 kilometers an hour for example and considering he's done this with no support that's some technological achievement it seems when you put it in that context yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, we, we've had electric cars for a lot longer than, than most people think. You know, they've been around for a long time. Um, but, of course, you know, the, the technology wasn't quite there. They were slow. You know, you know, think of, like, old milk floats, that kind of thing. Um, but I think what, what is most impressive is the fact that it's, that it's powered by solar. And, you know, there are, there are lots of instances of, you know, I know that there's... Um, I think university students working on a solar powered race car and, you know, lots of other people trying to complete these projects, but to, to do it from those materials, completely self-taught, if you're just, you know, driving around, you know, a small area or, you know, even a city where often you can't go any faster than that anyway, to be able to be just fully powered by the sun and, and move around like that is that that's incredible completely agree and and it just shows that actually continents like like africa do have innate skills like this which is why i think the work that science resources africa does okay some of its medical uh but predominantly it's it's scientific education as a as an ngo providing that opportunity for education is is really powerful um so more more power to them what do you think and feel and see in terms of um, technolo- technological development, Jess, in, in places like Africa? Is it, is it kind of like a, a, a giant just waiting to, to wake up? Or do you feel that these areas do need more input and more support in terms of getting, I don't know, an electric vehicle market or kind of off the ground? Yeah, so the electric vehicle market in Africa as a whole is almost completely contained to South Africa. And even then there's, I think it's something just like, a, you know, a few thousand electric cars there. So um, I don't know whether that's just a case of Africa lagging behind slightly or whether there, there is that kind of technological input needed. Um, and I think that, you know, that's why projects like this are important to kind of inspire people and 
you know, show what the potential is. This is the three E's. Sea levels are rising due to climate change, causing soil erosion and raising flood risks for those living on the coast and low-lying areas. As temperatures rise, oceans take up more space due to the particles expanding, and as ice caps melt, fresh water will filter into the sea. Greenland's ice sheet covers around 79% of the country. Loss of this through glacial melt will increase carbon release from the stored ice sheets, contributing further to climate change, and sea level rise may cause environmental migration to occur. Further research and acknowledgement of the issue needs to be taken. There's huge promotion of this issue online, and people need to go away and make themselves aware of the growing problem, as sea level rise isn't slowing down. Thanks, Caitlin, for your Ocean First facts. Caitlin McMillan is currently studying her Bachelor's in Geography from Birmingham University. Perfect. Well, that kind of leads us on to um, talking about West Africa, uh, some of the legacy projects and uh, the focus of the Ocean Expre, which was really focused just around um, climate change's impact to sea levels and also plastic pollution uh, that we're seeing. And while I'm on the kind of first-hand experience of being in West Africa, that plastic pollution is unreal. It must be something to do with the, um, the currents uh, and, the, and how they kind of circle around here because so much trash gets washed up on the, on the beaches that are not native to, to Africa. You see all kinds of different brands um, from North America, from Europe, not being produced in Africa completely um, but it is ending ending up on the on the beaches here it's uh, it's amazing how this stuff travels and as part of the ocean expre we saw beach cleans again uh, and we saw um, a real focus on on the plastic pollution that that was that was being seen in Senegal which I have visited Dakar I have seen the coastlines of of Dakar and um, actually it's twice as worse than it is in in the Ivory Coast to be honest it was it was like wading through it at some points you see as wow. you saw as much trash as you saw grass on the top of the of the cliff line there that that leads to the the beach kind of thing you saw it was kind of equal yeah and I think you know this goes to show that you know that our problem with 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 trash and with plastics is a is totally a global issue because you know what's being thrown away in other countries somehow is you know ending up on beaches in places like west africa and you know it, it's really interesting that you say you know some of this stuff is old because again you know going back to what we were talking about before if there was a plastic that could biodegrade in a year would we see a lot less of this um because that plastic is lasting so long it's never going to go anywhere apart from you know potentially just from beach to beach completely and that's where i think it was a, a really elegant um a, a really elegant partnership with polymateria to say look at all this trash on the beach actually that can be avoided if the technology allows impact-free biodegradable um, plastics to be used so for every 100 of these cups that have come from a coffee company or <clears throat> a soft drinks manufacturer in terms of bottles was made out of this kind of material then actually you wouldn't be seeing it on the beach now because it would have degraded 20 years ago uh, and that I think by being in Senegal 
and partnering up with Polymateria in that way is a really elegant kind of partnership to to make that clear. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm interested to know kind of from your point of view, what what impact does, you know, all of this rubbish on, on the beach have on, on local communities? Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of my enduring memories of, of being in, in Senegal so I would I would just go I would go running along the along the coastline, and actually the the beach, I mean the places like Dakar and Abidjan where I where I live in the Ivory Coast, you know they are they are very they're full of people you know they're there's they're, they're very close communities that that are all kind of living together especially in the more or less affluent uh, areas, and actually. There's no place, for example, to kick a football. So what people do and what people, what the kids were doing in, in Senegal was going to the beach to play football. And this was my enduring memory of just there being about on a very small stretch of beach, maybe, you know, um, 100, 100 meters long uh, stretch of beach, there would be probably about 100 kids all rotating in to play football. If that's covered in in trash, then you're not, you know, that just takes another another place away from these kids to go and go and play, go and socialise, go and learn. It's been kind of unavoidable, so the wildlife impact is is really strong. Um, again, along the along the coastlines, you know, you're you're seeing as you're seeing trash in in kind of areas that cause plant life to to die back. Um, that also doesn't doesn't help things um but yeah the the idea is these plastics don't don't degrade they do stay in in the ecosystem for a for a long long time and unless they're they're physically extracted either by people doing beach cleanups as we saw the drivers of extreme e doing or a great project that i think nico rosberg has has interviewed um boyan slat before uh, about the uh, about his plastic collecting boat that he he is taking around he's developing technologies for for ocean cleanup um which is also the name of his um his enterprise really the ocean cleanup um where he's taking a boat to actually collect all of these all of these plastics in on at some scale um still new technology still um you know kind of the wide adopting of it um will be important but you know, all of this trash that we've created over the last however many decades, um, it really is time to to kind of remove it um, so that it doesn't end up in fish, it doesn't end up in our uh, children's play areas, it doesn't end up on the beaches, it, and it doesn't have the, the kind of suffocating effect that, the, that it can have. I mean, when you talk about some of the numbers of, of tons of trash that are in the ocean, it will be having a... a absolutely a, a biodiversity impact yeah i think there's a bit of you know obviously mindfulness that com- comes from us as individuals in terms of you know what we're doing with you know with our rubbish and our, our single-use plastics but you know there, there also needs to be pressure and i'm sure there is um on you know big corporations and companies that are, that are also you know producing uh, significant uh, amounts of rubbish that that you know clearly just ends up in the oceans yeah, it's true, and um, a a uh, organisation I'm I'm very aware of. Um, as I used to I used to live kind of ten minutes, or I grew up ten minutes away from where their where their offices are in St Agnes and Cornwall. Um, 
is Surfers Against Sewage, really worth checking out the work that they do. And they do fantastic work around drawing attention to... Offenders is probably too strong a word, but the biggest offenders of, of, um, of plastics pollution. You know, the, advisedly you kind of say it has to be the, the organisation's uh, responsibility to make sure that those products don't end up there, even if they don't have control of how their products end up there, because it's all of our behaviour that, that puts them there. So they, they do some great campaigns. Um, they're called Surfers Against Surge. They're out of they're out of St Agnes. It's worth looking at the, the type of work that they do because they really do focus on the oceans. They focus on uh, having clean and nice beaches for us to go to. And the main other topic that Extreme was looking at uh, in Senegal was also um, sea level rising um, and the issues that that that's causing um i really like jess and it kind of occurred to me after this second one that there's a really a really clear storyline that's developing with with extreme after going to saudi arabia and looking at desertification and then going to senegal and looking at sea levels and then the next race that's going to be in greenland that looks at glacial melt they're all interconnected it's all cause and effect and it's when we get to Greenland, we're going to be looking at glacial melt, which is one of the key five tipping points that is really going to be the most impacted from, from climate change by not restricting the, the, to the 1.52 degree change. Um, the glacial melt, along with um, the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheets, um, the Arctic glaciers and, and icebergs in, uh, in the Arctic seas, them melting, coral reef die-off and the Amazon jungle are, are kind of considered to be the five key tipping points um, of, of climate change that if we don't restrict what we're doing, those things will end up happening and will have resultant further impacts on, on the climate. Um, and one of the extremely did a really good job of this. They had a they had a graphic which uh, actually showed the impact of just Greenland's glacial melt um, on sea level rising. Uh, the Greenland ice sheet will will be about nine centimeters of of sea level rise. Um, so if you consider all of the seas increasing in in height by nine centimeters that's just down to the glacier in greenland melting it's um it's stuck it's really it it seems un unbelievable but this is where that storytelling is kind of is kind of terminating as we go from sea level actually it's a result of this this glacial melting in greenland i think that'll be a really interesting uh, a really interesting episode of the of the climate change story when extreme e gets there yeah, I'm really interested to kind of, you know, hear more about this. But those those figures for, you know, it's just Greenland alone that's causing that nine centimetres. When you take into the t take into account everything else that's melting, the, the impact's just going to be huge. This is where I'll try and articulate a little bit where everything else is melting. So if you're talking about the Arctic and the Antarctic, what ice does and what these ice sheets do is they, they actually protect us from the sun. So the, the balance of ice... Um, at the at the polar north and south actually protects us from the the earth heating up as a result of the the sun's heat so they reflect it back when they go and when they melt due to human and and natural warming 
actually the earth will get hotter again and this is where it kind of gets to a point where it's kind of out of our control if we let that happen because it will exponentially increase in in temperature it's also subject to um to to impacts from warming temperatures of the of the atmosphere of the earth and so another thing that extreme e kind of put put out there was that thermal expansion or the expansion of water due to a warmer climate and warmer temperature um, would add another 40 centimeters onto that sea level they all the sea level will come up another 40 centimeters half a meter almost um, just because the earth is getting hotter and this is where the 1.5 to 2 degrees um, again comes in because it's kind of that 1.5 to 2 degrees change in temperature that will see that kind of thermal expansion start to happen in the in the sea levels. Yeah and am I right in thinking that at the moment we we can kind of fix what we've already done but it sounds like if if things get any worse there's going to be a point when you know we're not going to be able to get back we're not going to be able to you know help the planet heal and it's just going to get worse and worse we we can still do things about this which is why the 2020 to 2030 kind of decade it's seen as so important um and it's why the ipcc guidance to the 1.5 to 2 degrees to um 2050 we're seeing, we are seeing it change, and we are seeing that sooner is is much better. But we are in control, and we do have the agreement of governments from the 197 odd countries that are signed up to the Paris Agreement. We have the science and the data; it's been there really for decades. So we are coming to the kind of last decade where we can uh, really meaningfully change this. And there is there is the money and the awareness. But we're at the urgent end of it now. But we are in control. We do have the opportunity to do it. We just need to kind of see the, the pace of movement um, towards towards that. Um, and I guess kind of the projects that Extreme E are doing and the um, other other charitable bodies and other organizations like uh, 2Org and Ocean Oceanium and Ecozone, um, who they we're all connected to, to look at sea levels and how they put something in place to kind of support climate, the climate change impacts. Um, where the planting, I think it's one of the most well pub publicized legacy projects, um, planting around a million mangroves and seagrass uh, around, around Dakar and around Senegal to really act as a, I think we talked about it before, a carbon sink uh, that will start ingesting carbon quite quickly, probably quicker than some of the tree planting that you you will see in terms of other projects, because they take around 20 to 40 years really to mature if you're planting the right trees as part of those projects. Well, mangroves and seagrass, they mature a lot quicker and will end up being uh, really, really effective in carbon sequestration a lot a lot quicker than trees so as much of those as that we can get in and replace that what's been lost uh, the better so I think that's a really again a million mangroves uh, I think it was something like 160 football pitches worth of uh, of mangrove plants 
which why everything. Oh, wow, that is huge. Yeah, well, I, it's funny how it's always measured in football pitches, but uh, it's uh, it's 160 <laughs> odd of them. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a lot, and of course, what they do is they prevent coastal erosion erosion from um, extreme weather events, uh, large waves kind of washing, you know, uh, the the coast away from hurricanes impacting and blowing beaches away and and those parts of the coastline. Um, but also they, they protect it from kind of tidal change as well. Um, so really, really useful as well as being a, a carbon sink for, to protect the coastlines, which I think is why it's a, a, really, a really strong project. Jess, thank you so much for your time again today and your company. Uh, I think it was a fantastic event in Senegal for the Ocean X Prix and we will be back for the Arctic X Prix in Greenland. But keep it tuned because we will have some other shows coming for you in the meantime to make sure that you are staying on top of what's going on with Extremi. Jess, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me.